Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, many are saying that Lord Sebastian Coe is the front runner to replace Lord Patton as chair of the BBC Trust. He certainly seems qualified, but is he going to get the job? And if not, who will? Is crowdfunding the future of journalism? If newspapers and magazines are mere middlemen now, is cutting them out the way to sustainable journalism? And Kate Middleton's bottom. The British press have declined to print their pictures, but they're all over the internet, which raises the question, practically speaking, do blanket media bans even make sense anymore? Media Focus. And normally at this point I say that we're joined by two of the media's best and brightest, but not this time. We're joined by two media legends. Raymond Snoddy, journalist, former presenter of BBC Newswatch and well-known from his spells as media editor at The Times and the FT, and Peter Dukes, screenwriter, journalist and famous around these parts for live-tweeting the phone-hacking trial. In May, Lord Patton stepped down as chair of the BBC Trust and, given his controversial tenure, the classic resignation reason from the spin doctors would have been to invent a health reason. It just so happens that, in this case, it's actually true, so of course we wish Chris a speedy recovery. But with the broadcaster facing its usual clutch of challenges, both large and small, and perhaps with the future of the trust itself still uncertain, who should be leading it through this difficult period and beyond? Many are saying that Lord Sebastian Coe is the frontrunner for the job. He certainly seems qualified given his achievements with the Olympics. So, Ray, are the Coe lovers right? And if not, who would you pick? There's nothing negative that you can say about Lord Coe. He would almost certainly do a good job if one, he applied, and two, he was accepted. But I think, uh, out of for purely symbolic reasons, he should not be appointed chairman of the BBC Trust. I think in an intensely political environment, just for a change, it would be nice to have someone without any overt political colours. Party political baggage. Party political baggage. Now, Lord Patton was a former Tory minister, former for the last governor of Hong Kong. I think he saw it as pretty much an honorific title, a bit like being Chancellor of Oxford University. If he ever, if he ever thought that for a second, it wouldn't have taken him long to change his mind. The BBC is trying to chair it, trying to run it, trying to be responsible for it. It's like being in the ultimate goldfish bowl and stuff comes down the track and almost on a daily basis and the potential for trouble is enormous. So I do think... There is a very strong, given that given that we're heading towards a general election, given that the whole future of the of BBC regulation, uh, the Royal Charter, the the continuation of the licence fee, huge debates up up there uh, to be debated in an ever increasing complexity of the media world. It would be nice to have someone who's good. Uh, who's clever, who's got some business experience, who's got some editorial experience and has got no overt party political affiliation is what we want. The problem is we've had people like Greg Dyke uh, being Director General before who had Labour Party baggage. Do you not think it's inevitable that someone who is going to tick all the boxes you've just said is going to have some involvement in party politics? Not necessarily and in a moment I'll give you a couple of suggestions but just just to deal with the Greg Dyke situation, I'm not being wise after the event I actually wrote in the Times that the and Greg Dyke, I started in local newspapers with him and would regard him as a friend. I said the problem with Greg Dyke was not that he was a Labour Party apparatchik, but that he might be trying to too hard to prove that he wasn't, and that's actually what happened in the end and was his un, uh, his undoing. Now, uh, if I had to look at this moment for a for a chairman of the BBC Trust, why not Marjorie Scardina? Dame Marjorie Scardino. 
She is an American, a bit of an outsider, though has spent all of her career in Britain, as or most of it, um, as chief executive of Pearson. She knows about editorial issues, but is not a journalist. She is a sort of neutral figure who I think would be sophisticated enough to try and take the BBC into the future. Do you think and she's, she's not the, to get she's it? Not, she's not the only one, but she's, she's the sort of, per, sort of person who should be seriously considered, not another party political person, in my view. Do you think she will get it? Probably not. She might be actually too smart and intelligent a lady uh, to accept. She might... She might uh, I, I know she's an, on, a non-executive director of Twitter. She's just retired fairly recently from, from, uh, from Pearson. She might be far too smart... To, to have her life disrupted <laughs> on, on a daily basis. But, but if she could be persuaded to apply, it would be a very good application. Peter, your tenure as uh, the live tweet at the phone hacking trial is coming to an end. Are you tempted to apply for the job? I certainly am not. I mean, I've worked for the BBC on and off and other organisations for years. And oddly enough, I worked for uh, Lord Coe um, at the Olympics. I was uh, on the village newspaper for the Olympic um, athletes. But a lot of people I worked with had been with Coe. Uh, for about three or four years, you know, and they couldn't speak more highly of him as a manager. My only, I think, you know, Remy's got great points about somebody who isn't p- politically affiliated, but you think about Co, he kind of transcends that a little bit. Thanks he might indeed. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not hostile to him. I'm just saying, in an ideal world, it'd be good not to have a Tory or a Labour Party. The problem with Scardino and other figures like that, or managerial figures, I mean, I think Tony Hall is your editorial, you know, manager, you've yes. got him in the places. DG, you need somebody who understands the cultural import of the BBC. Now, you know, whatever you say about Cohen, people complain the Olympic opening ceremony was very left-wing, you know, was kind of whatever, some, you know, a new Labour uh, tract. He obviously managed to get the whole country to rally together. That was he, ter- terrific. terrific and, and so maybe he would just understand some inner core, which stops it being divisive for the BBC. But I say this with little knowledge. You know what? You know what? It all depends what happens at the general election. Um, which is a fixed fixed time, but they, this this chairman of the trust will be appointed before an election. Should the Tories um, get an absolute majority, which I'm not sure that's exactly what will happen, but should they get an absolute majority, then it wouldn't be too bad thing for the BBC to have someone who understands Tory language. You know, and, and they all go native in the end, wasn't it? Marmaduke Hussey famously yes, put in there by Thatcher, yes. and he went native. You know, I was going to I was going to I was going to say that I'm not I'm not taking a sort of uh, strange view that because Coe was a member of the Conservative Party, he could not do it. Because, I mean, I think there's a lot of sociological theory that people who come into a role start performing that role. Marmaduke Hussey um, was indeed, appeared to be a Thatcher, a Thatcher placement who turned out to fight ferociously for the independence of the BBC. There was only one subject he couldn't be trusted on, and that was royalty uh, because his, his his wife his wife was a lady in waiting to the Queen. And, they, indeed, and they, yes. the, the, the great panorama Diana story, Lord Burt decided he should not be told in advance, which was actually quite a clever. But no, the general point is people are not are not just automated. They are automated. They actually do take on the importance of the role. So Lord Coe's a splendid person. I'm just saying in an ideal world, it might be better not. But well, Peter, do you think that one of the problems here is the actual role of chair of the trust itself? No one quite knows what they ought to be doing in well, terms uh, of, you know, the, the trust is a cheerleader for the BBC, but is also it's kind of, uh, it's a poacher and a gamekeeper, isn't it? It's supposed to be strict and regulate them, but also defend them when necessary. So there's a duality to that role. Well, wouldn't he be the last uh, chair of the trust? That's the talk they will get rid of the trust and um, an Ofcom would have, a, maybe it's been talked about on both sides of the house, hasn't it? The I, would, I, would, I would strongly argue against this and I don't, I, I don't believe Ofcom actually wants it. 
it. The centralization of power over the regulation of all media in this country in the hands of essentially bureaucrats at, at Ofcom would be the worst possible outcome. I, I do agree there's a duality and a tension in the trust being a regulator and not so much a cheerleader as a defender of the editorial independence of the BBC. But also I, representing I, licence fee pays as well. I think yes, they, they, take, they, take, they, take, they take their duty representing licence fee payers seriously. And I think if you're going to have a body like the BBC, then there will always be tension between, uh, between tension with the government, tension with the regulator. And I'm happy that that ambiguity should continue, though maybe better defined. Yes, I mean, it goes back to, I was reading about who, Alistair Milne, who yes. died recently. I mean, we think it's brutal now. I mean, he was, oh. literally, I remember being at the BBC in the 80s and you said you could just see the heads rolling down the stairs. Of course. There's a cull of, you know. <laughs> he was people. humiliated before select committees and all of that yeah. over the Falklands, yeah. over the Falklands coverage. And real lives, all, all, and, and, and real lives. All, all, all of that, all of that is absolutely true. But I think the sort of knee-jerk reaction to get rid of trust, remember why the trust was put in place because it was, it was argued that the, the regulator was sitting on the board with the BBC management, were subject to regulatory capture because they were there. They had no independent source of information. Therefore, they believed what they were told by the likes of Greg Dyke, and that, there, there lay trouble. Mm. So, so the trust was meant to be one step removed with their own source of independent information. It hasn't worked perfectly, but I think it works rather better than the opposite. So, Peter, do you think it's the lesser of two evils? I think there's a bigger issue at stake here, and it's related to um, what we've been seeing going on with the phone hacking trial, or related to it. Uh, there is constant pressure from commercial news organisations saying the BBC on local radio, on the internet, is querying their pitch. And it's always an argument I've noticed right from the beginning of the, like, the B-Sky-B takeover uh, back in 2011, which is vaguely related to this trial I'm covering, uh, that they would say, well, the BBC is a monopoly. And therefore, we're not really a monopoly if we get, you know, actually B Sky B and News International News UK are now double the size of the BBC. And it does create this problem. I'm a great staunch defender of public service broad- broadcasting. But before I engage in anything about uh, News Corp, I wrote a critical piece of the monopoly, internal monopoly of the BBC about drama. And they had destroyed our relative standing compared with the US. There's a piece called Why We Couldn't Write the Wire. I think plurality needs to be inserted in the core of our public service broadcasting. I'm not sure all these changes of chairs at the top really address that, as I see, as somebody works them, you have a centralised commissioning system which moves very, very slowly and feeds always upwards. And, and I think that's the... And, and, and it does give commercial operators an advantage for being quicker and be a justification. Well, you've got a monopoly, why can't we have one? Well, there's a lot, a lot of truth in that. However, uh, I, would, I would argue that the... The ideal system, remember that Britain spends more per head on original media content and broadcasting than any other country in the world, and that includes the United States. And that's because we've got a strong subscription service in Sky. We've got a strong um, uh, commercial advertising service in Channel 4 and ITV. And this great, some would say, too large a hulk in the BBC at $3.6 billion a year in licence fee. That actually means competition. And to address the drama point, I mean, getting close to 48% of the BBC's commissions go to independent producers now. There's 25% guaranteed um, by law, and another 25% goes to the competitive process. Now, is the BBC too, too bureaucratic? Does it waste money? Is it slow? 
all of those things I are think, true. See, but that's an argument for improving it and making it better rather oh, than Oh, absolutely. Don't get me wrong. I think the last thing to break it up or sort of... Uh, it does it spends much more money in production. Uh, but there is an issue about independent commissioning. I've been involved in it many, many years. That there is deemed to be, you know, favoured suppliers... And, and what I'm arguing... The same so, is said about Channel 4. No, exactly. But, and I think that's a problem. It is a problem. And it, yeah. it, historically, I'd love to do a piece about it. It has been a problem. I could go into more details. It's the plurality. I mean, in the old days, with great drama, and look at it in the 80s and 90s, you had much more producer autonomy. Now this all goes up to a central high. You see, I think there's an underlying problem which cannot be reversed and cannot be put back. If you're, if you're a really creative producer in the BBC with ideas... Why should you hang around on 45000 a year Indeed, when you can set up your own company and become a multimillionaire yeah, and sell and your company to Time Warner? And the independent companies, this great diverse market, are basically all owned by three people now. So it's, this independent commission we have is flowery. Media, it's, it's three media, Shine and yeah, uh, Warner exactly, and NBC. Exactly. You know. So actually this diversity has gone from the market. It's not mm. To me, my, the problem is it's not really a marketplace, an open marketplace, unlike the US where I have worked in, where there are obviously more companies, more channels. Yeah. And it's, it's a it reminds me of the nationalised rail but, but, network. In theory, it's producer choice. You can have produce an ITV show and the BBC TV centre, etc. But the reality is, you've got very few players in it, and it's just however, surely however, deck chairs. However, I, I bet you any, I bet you any money on the cost of I, If we had a, if we had an inde- small independent <laughs> US producer here, he'd be whinging about the same thing that says CBS and NBC have got their favoured suppliers. Well, and they I, do, and yes. I can't get my nose in, you know. But there is having been through that, having pitched the show in the US, you you turn up for three meetings. Well, a meeting for 20 minutes with three broadcasters. They picked it up at a 20-minute meeting. Here, getting a commission out of the BBC is like electing a pope. Yes. Sometimes smoke comes but out slower. of the chimney, yeah. but slower yeah, and more mysterious. We've mentioned a couple of names in terms of the chair. Who do we think will actually get it? It's not who we want to get it. Who do we think realistically? Who do you think will end up with it? Do you think it will be Lord Coe? I wouldn't be at all surprised if it was. He is said to have the backing of David uh, Cameron. He is also... Um, as we've heard, an entirely plausible and decent candidate. And um, it's the Prime Minister who sends, first of all, the Culture Secretary sends two names forward to Downing Street. If Lord Coe is one of those two names, guess what? Um, uh, David Cameron will choose him. And then one name goes to the Queen for rubber stamping. And uh, yes, it could indeed be Lord Coe and it wouldn't be a disaster. And so much for arm's length. I mean, this, this is supposed to be an institution which is controlled at arm's length. If two names go promoted by the Prime Minister go to the Queen. Anyway, I mean, I'm sure they'll, and British society will muddle along and we'll get somebody who, who is, you know, acceptable to all sides. And people love the BBC and hopefully it will only flourish. Long may it continue. Is crowdfunding the future of journalism? Already cash-strapped, journalists are now going directly to their readers to raise cash. Indeed, one of the people around this very table, Peter Dukes, has himself raised over 20 grand to cover the cost of live tweeting the phone hacking trial. Are newspapers and magazines mere middlemen now? And is cutting them out the key to sustainable journalism and crowdfunding the way to go? Peter. Oh, wow, that's a lot of questions. Well, it is, one. It, yeah. I, I, in the court, I'm always hearing, so what is the question the judge <laughs> yeah. will ask them? <laughs> first things first, I think there are two advantages I had live tweeting, uh, which other journalists didn't have. Uh, actually, three. One, I was an idiot. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know quite what I was walking into. In terms we don't of accept walking. that. But, uh, well, we anyway, think you're I, a genius on this table. She's you and slightly... You have to be an idiot to do new things <laughs> yeah, yeah, A bit do. naive at the reporting yeah. restrictions. Secondly, you know, dramatist background helped, I think, that I was, um, you know, had an, hopefully have an ear for dialogue and can type quite quickly. Thirdly, I think it really helped that I wasn't a part of any news organisation. Mm. I'll tell you why. If I screwed up, 
it was only my reputation I was, you know, I was, I was abusing. And so I didn't have to take those sort of nanoseconds to refer to the internal editor goes, well, what would the BBC think about this? Many other journalists, brilliant, much better journalists than me are there, but they all have this internal editor and they all also actually have to go and file off in that evening or do mm-hmm. a news report. And I think that gave me an additional speed. Obviously, I had written a book about this whole subject. I knew the background and I'd been to the pretrial hearing, so I can't be completely naive. But those were key advantages. I think, Peter, it's almost a cliche to say it's obvious, but I really felt following your tweets that I was there, you know, in, in some of the kind of major ones and even the small ones, that you got a real sense of colour that you, you were there. And it was, yeah. You could get on with your work, but also feel <laughs> that you had an ear on what was happening in the trial. I'm glad everyone else got on with their work because I haven't done anything else <laughs> for the last seven months. But what I'm totally, this, I mean, what you did, apart from the quality of your tweets, the financing of it is, is, grind, is absolutely groundbreaking stuff. We've heard of uh, uh, crowdfunding for sort of... Uh, companies and projects. I've never, ever heard crowd crowdfunding a reporter before. How did people know uh, that you wanted the money? How did it get out there? What sort of people and what sort of sums did the, on average, did they produce? Wow, if I remember all Great question. Questions. It was better than my question. Yeah, I've actually, it's swap roles. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll crowdfund you to be the presenter of this, no one. <laughs> and then you can come be an interviewee. Indeed. Uh, so, going back to uh, the, the first part of that question is, you know, how did it I'm just fascinated out. by no, the whole process. No, no, so indeed, I did crowdfund. Too. It's interesting. I had two projects before. My book, uh, Fall of the House of Murdoch, yeah. Fall of the Media Dynasty, not the individual. Uh, House of Murdoch was crowdfunded through this very innovative publisher called Unbound. Yeah. So that basically brought the pre-sale. So I knew a little about yeah. pledges and things like that. I'd also been involved in working on a musical, which had gone through a crowdfunding uh, phase. Right, right. And, but it was all incredibly last minute. So, I mean, I, it was, I didn't know you could live tweet beyond the opening. I was exhausted three days. I re- literally was out of money because of various projects falling through, no retainer from the Daily Beast. And then that night, um, Justice Saunders lifted the interdiction. You can crowdfund, the whole, you can live tweet the whole trial. I thought, bloody hell. Why and not? so everybody was saying, were well, you going to do it? And I said, oh, God, I can't afford it. So what I did, I sort of, it was quite terrifying. I, my followers had doubled or tripled in those three days, but I got some cool people following me. What Jeremy Clarkson. Yeah, it's about 12,000. Yeah. Ed Medaband, Jeremy Clarkson, Piers Morgan, they're all following me. Yeah. Uh, and and I had to say to them, well, I wouldn't be able to do it tomorrow. because I, And so I wrote a sort of late-night blog. But somebody, it's so weird, somebody had just paid me 20 quid through PayPal. You know, if you've got your email address, they can pay you through PayPal. And I kind of put that in the post saying, well, if there's somebody who wants to fund me, and I published and said, I'm going to be there tomorrow. And I just published it about four in the morning. I woke up, thank God, lying in a bit, uh, till t- at 10 o'clock, and it had gone viral. And people had gone viral with this post. Somebody suggested Was it Big Sugar Daddies or, or lots of people giving you tenors? Lots of little mavens, as they're called. No, no, the money hadn't. But somebody is suggesting I go crowdfunding. Oh, and mm-hmm. then they said, go on, crowdfund it. So there were like you know, 20, 30 people and then retweeting saying I should do this. Unfortunately, because I been to indiegogo before i'd just done an interview with cnn that weekend key thing is the video bunged up the video said well can you give me four grand till christmas five day deadline thinking you know god let's be over the pain quite quickly and it was funded in about three hours i think actually if you remember peter i met you at leveson do you remember we 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 sat next to each other and you were live tweeting that and do you remember lord justice leveson gave us funny looks because we were like the naughty kids weren't we chatting away and we were stopping him uh yes we were uh, we were were giggling when we were leveson it was that was fun yes i was tweeted for so it was a mixture of hinterland and complete accident but sorry i I, i'm not trying to no you by all means i've got one really final final question just the obvious one really 
What happens if you、uh, then write a book、mm. based on this, which is hugely commercially successful? Do the people get their money back, or do you just say thank you? Yeah, what's the motivation for people? Is it just to keep you going because this is a worthy、it's、thing? Are they trying to invest in the in、it's, the process to make some money? It's completely fascinating. You know, people invest. You ask ranges of money. They were quite large sum sums and quite. Too, and I remember when I changed the second pledge, which raised sixteen. I, I said you can have a two pound pledge. So lots. Of, it was like Obama had lots of small donors,、yeah. but a few big ones. And it's very interesting. I had special for people who pay more special pledges, like you know, special meeting or you know, briefing、yeah. and things like that. They all said, "Well, basically, Peter, we're paying you to provide it free to other people."、Mm. Oh, it was a kind of telethon. You know,、yes. it's like you raise money、so、for PBS, a public on a good. Small scale. It's a flat, and they would want to be part of it. Now, in terms of the book, so I have tweeted whatever four thousand five hundred words, not quite War and Peace, getting close to it,、uh, and、uh, nearly three million keystrokes. All that's publicly available. Yes. The book will be about all the stuff I couldn't tweet. So all、or、the your, legal or your judgment argument, upon it.、Yeah. judgment. No, but oh my god, so much going on behind the scenes. By the way, little plug here:、uh, www.hackingtrial. dot com because that's where you pre-buy the book. And given that you're personally liable for, you know, if you'd made a mistake and、yeah. and tweeted something you shouldn't have done, how did you differentiate on a moment by moment basis? Oh, that's for public. That I best not say that. No, you know, you can. There's a very simple rule. There's a lot of legal argument. Jury's not in today yet, but they're arguing. The lawyers are arguing. There's a huge amount of stuff. They've been arguing for months before the trial. When the jury are there. You're allowed to tweet out whatever the jury here, and they're not there most a lot of the time.、Yeah. But you're not allowed to tweet all of that because there's reporting restrictions. So twenty names at any one time are floating around. Can't mention that person. Come up with the euphemism for that executive or reporter, and that's the bloody nightmare.、Sure. I mean, But Ray, do you think this is the future? I've, I've I've been really intrigued by it. I've never thought such a thing is possible. I mean, we see newspapers、um, under the cosh in terms of their financial model. We see hundreds of journalists、uh, being made redundant.、Uh, America first, and you can see it happening here. You can see you can see all of these poor people、um, becoming freelancers, fighting over tiny morsels, and people are starting. You're starting to see、uh, people who've made vast sums of money on Google and all of that coming、Amazon、in and buying at buying high-end newspapers. I've I just wonder whether at the individual and the individual end. There, there might be something in this, some some way of, but it would require exceptional people like the like the one before us today.、Mm. If you, if you if you just suddenly said, "Give me money, I want to be a reporter," I don't think in general it would have to be for a specific project,、yes. and you would have had to prove that you can offer something specific a, of importance. Is it that you had a niche then, Peter? A complete niche. Do you think about it? There's no cameras allowed there. And I actually think there's an advantage of tweets because you can search them; they're text-based, unlike cameras.、Sure. So this is a place nobody can get to. Yeah. And they all want to know what's going on. And you could be first. So it's a, I can't think of going to the moon without cameras. Or what else? There's not many occasions where you can live tweet. I've noticed the mail.、Uh, the mirror actually had a really innovative site live tweeting the Rolls Harris trial. And I think without cameras, trials are a very unusual place. But I think you know the models are completely changing all the time. And I, I do think as brands of papers kind of slightly decline. And Google sucks up all the advertising because that's what's happened. It's、of、not、course. people not paying for the subscription. It's all the advertising's gone over to Google. That there is a space for those individual pamphleteering voices. Is it kind of、it's、was back the to、end. the 18th century? Yes,、yeah. yeah. And I can tell you that is the brilliant thing: is a people paying you direct. I haven't had this immediacy since I was in theatre. 
immediately responding back, you know, working for television for many years, you hear about a review. Did that distract you as you were tweeting in the trial that people then replied to those tweets and say, what about this, what about that? Because you almost have to deal with your inbox as well as pay attention to what's being said in court. You have to, you know, show engagement, that's what they get from you, but often often their tweets are highly contemptuous. I can tell you the lawyers are all over my timeline and it's it's a very scary process. Maybe I like edgy moments. But But you're not responsible for the replies, some of which could be rude and... Absolutely not, but it is an argument to use that I have so uh, many followers. And they have, uh, well, I can tell more after the trial, but, you know, they they have been mentioned in court, uh, these tweets. It's just a very difficult area because people forget. You're breaking breaking your ground. And people are publishing. And everybody replying on Twitter, they just think they're talking down the pub, but they're not. They're technically publishing. So what's next for you, Peter? Uh, well, I mean, uh, then there's the book. Then, oh my goodness, a holiday, hopefully. Yeah, I think I you will, deserve one. I suppose I wouldn't mind. I've been a freelancer now for 30 years in drama and things like that. If somebody offered me a live tweeting job for, you know, uh, a year or so or some social media job, I might be interested in taking it. Uh, I've got film projects. and uh, You know yeah. what? I've just had a brilliant idea. Mm. How about persuading Twitter that they need to sponsor some professional tweeters? And you could be the first one. How that would be that? a fantastic idea. Incredible. Okay. Do reporting restrictions make sense in the age of the internet? Recently, the British press declined to print revealing pictures of Kate Middleton's bottom, but as was inevitable, they've been printed elsewhere and are, of course, easily available for all to see on the electric interweb. And although the current furore is merely over the photos of the bottom of the future Queen, it does raise the question over what would happen if there were issues of national security, personal safety, legality, etc. So, practically speaking then, do blanket media bans even make sense anymore? Ray? In a word, no. Thank you, you very much for coming in. <laughs> be, because you, you can't you 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 can't stop anything appearing, um, and uh, MI5 can jump up and down as much as they like about Snowden. But if the stuff's all over all over it's the there, internet, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, one of the most ludicrous events to happen in Britain, I think, in recent times, was to be MI5 and his mate Knacker of the Yard coming to a basement in, in the, the Guardian, Guardian. Yeah. Taking a hammer to hard disks when the stuff when they were told that there were there were copies and the stuff that had already left the country and anyway was on the internet. I mean, but whether whether it matters whether we see somebody's bottom because a helicopter updraft lifts a skirt. I mean, I I refuse to get totally excited about that. But there is a there is an interesting question though whether the established media by which we mean print and online, but domiciled in Britain, have got to adhere to higher standards because the government can impose it through a post-Levison sort of regulator, through a royal charter. It makes no sense, but you can see the the, the sort of perhaps old-fashioned argument that if it appears in the Times, it's of more substance than, Mm. as they would see, gossip and tittle-tattle unproven. In, in the internet. So there's, a, there's this, but one, just one final point. There is a real problem if the traditional media are lent upon uh, to be slightly more respectable on the internet that, and they become really boring and people don't trust them to provide the real stories anymore. Because they people feel they've been silenced. And people want to, want, want to see a royal, a royal posterior and they go elsewhere. And that, that trend of people going elsewhere and and the established media getting more and more boring compared with what's available out there, then 
becomes a in the end a circulation and financial problem. But do you think practically it's it's not an issue for for example the Guido Fox website is very well respected, very well read political website. You know his website's hosted in something ridiculous like Tuvalu and it's incorporated in Saint Helena deliberately to be as complex as possible beyond the reach of British lawyers. Do you think、oh. that makes a difference? Well, of course it does, because it means they can they can publish what they want. But is that what people are going to do then? Contrive these schemes just、yeah. to avoid circumvent any regulatory regime? And I think they'll be able to do it. But it comes back to our previous topic of conversation: the funding, the funding of serious、uh, mm. journalism. The the editor of the Guardian, Alan, Alan, Alan Rushbridger,、uh, says the importance of journalism is independently verified information. And of course, the internet. You can say anything you like out there. Any sort of crap can can go out there. Any nutter of the day. So somehow we've got to find a way of protecting the the, the finances of people who actually check things, as opposed to people who just smear, just spread smears and gossip. I think, Peter, the the kind of safety net with your live tweets from the trial, of course, is that you were physically there, and if you'd have breached any court rules or legality, then they could have arrested you there and then.、Absolutely. And the very fact you carried on tweeting suggested no, you hadn't I, actually broken any statutes. Exactly. I, I've changed my mind about this. I used to, in the early days of the internet, used to write about this New Statesman thing. Was quite a sort of, I don't know, liberal, well, techno libertarian. I thought this dispersion of information would lead to sort of general increase of wisdom, like John Stuart Mill. This, I, you know, partly because of the Google problem, it's all given free and it's a kind of dumping exercise to destroy other. I'm not sure that works economically, and certainly, you know,、um, the Assange position, if you like, the Julian Assange position, which is. Well, look, we've got the cables. You know, we've got you've got all the military cables. Just get them out there. Just throw them out there. Well, the Guardian, don't redact God them. Godfather Guardian, who redacted them, and you know, the Guardian in... put an editorial brain on it. Exactly. What was fair? You can argue whether they did it well or perfectly, but the point is, they didn't just throw it out. Same, there. same with Snowden. I mean, and so the idea that you know information can just be sh- shared completely arbitrarily and freely. Uh, without any oversight is, and it's not about regulation. It's it, you know, it's it's justice in some ways. I mean, I, I, we might go into the Leveson things, but you know, all my concern is about is you have a fair complaint system, you know,、sure. that protects good journalism and protects members of the public. And the other issue, especially court reporting. I mean, you know, I've always encountered this with Americans who have, must say have been very wary and chilled by our Attorney General about reporting this in the U.S.、Uh, <laughs> is in Europe the Article Six rights, right, rights to fair trial. Away above Article Ten rights to freedom of expression,、mm. whereas in America there's slightly more openness to expression, and that all seems good. Everybody says what they like in America, but if you talk to journalists who work in America, there are n- numerous trials in the South, particularly, where you know basically the jury is bombarded by newspapers who say somebody's guilty, somebody's sent to death row on the basis of media campaign commenting、mm. on a trial. So. I, you know, one has to think about free expression isn't everything. That rights to privacy, Article Eight. You know, Kate Middleton's bottom, whatever. If you want to find it, you can find it. And I think you just don't. It's a difference between having it in your face. They still are these newspapers on their shelf. You know, the kids can see them come to the door、sure. and Peter, digging around for it on the internet. What do you think about the ethics of signposting? So, for example,、um, you know, I've read in the the Mail Online many times. You know that. Whilst they can't report where Maxine Carr lives, for example, or what the the likenesses of、uh, John Venables and、uh, you know the killers of Jamie、uh, Bulger are, you, they say they're on Twitter, and a simple search means that you can find that information. Is do, would you say that that's ethical? Well, this is where you get isn't it this interactivity between the audience and the news organisation? Because it's almost as bad, isn't it? The mill don't say, but they can say you can find out where Maxine Carr lives well, on they're, Twitter. They're very heavily lawyered, so they know exactly what they're doing.、Sure. You know, and it's it's the surveillance problem, isn't it? In in the world of Twitter, as you know, NSA. 
has you know shown they can scoop up great amounts of data from smartphones, which are both you know surveillance cameras, bugging devices, and tracking devices. Privacy is going to be at a premium, and obviously you can track people down. And now a lot of the litigation, like you know abusive stalking tweets or whatever, is about citizens to protect themselves against other citizens who are using that information. Uh, wow, you know we're just going to have to find our rules here. But I don't think anymore that just throwing it out there is a solution because that just suits. Big, powerful people. It doesn't necessarily suit the small person. I agree entirely that we're still developing rules, mm. rules that are acceptable to society as a whole. And after all, the the Twitter sphere is a is a relatively new phenomenon. And I think in the end, we will we we will come to judgments that where it's made to serve openness and freedom of expression without being personally damaging. Yes, I've noticed, actually. It's amazing. I, had, I worked on American blogs, as I said, for many years. You have this thing called community moderation where somebody says something vile and other people take them out for it. Yeah, and absolutely. that's beginning to happen on Twitter. Yes. And I, I must say, for all, I've had very few abusive posts. And yeah. a few I had some from Tabloid But also, also people are aware what they can and can't say. So I had a few yeah. friends that uh, you know, tweeted, uh, retweeted Sally Burkhill's tweet, for example. Mm. And now, you know, I was talking to a few of them a couple of weeks ago, and they said they wouldn't dream of doing anything remotely like that now, because as a citizen, they're now sure. aware of the limits of their own yeah, Twitter. And they actually felt si- quite shame that they'd done it. Yeah, the civic citizen, I didn't know that. You know, I did, sure. most of the contempt laws, I didn't realise you couldn't judge a trial while it's going on, say, so-and-so looks guilty or not. The, yeah. uh, the prob- Jigsaw the problem- identification was something yeah. I learned. Oh, well, yes, yeah. indeed. Well, no, no, I, I'm, a, I'm a properly trained journalist, went to, went to college, I know all about jigsaw identification. Um, but, um, but I think that the politicians are partly to blame. They have, for many years, they haven't really implemented content, laws of content. And people who have been treated terribly by the newspapers, only because the newspapers, if they're given the chance, will get away with it. They should have been, the Attorney General should have, should have warned the majors, go, excuse me, you're, this is prejudicing a fair trial. The line. You will be in the clink yourself if yep, you kept, yep. keep doing this. But there's been silence uh, for maybe a decade, and it's only now they're trying to pull that back again. But, yeah. Ray, do you not feel a tiny bit sorry for the editors of the national newspapers? There's barely little money oh, in no, the industry anymore. They're lawyered up for the editors at all. Never, never, never. People never. can tweet they get, whatever they like they and get, they can't. They get paid an awful lot of money for the responsibility, okay. and if they don't want to do the job, there's, there's many behind them who will accept it. And that's what, there's almost a dictatorship in editorship. It's interesting it just hearing this evidence. It's, just talking to, it's a hierarchy, you know, and, and police officers... I saw a police officer and said, is it true that, you know, newsroom, a journalist can just get fired if a new editor comes in? Yeah. And it's a bit like drama commissioning. Because yeah. yeah, obviously the police, you've got yeah. the ranks. You have to do something sure. really bad to get fired. And it's, yes. uh, you know, editors have massive power. And, and boy, they like to use it. I mean, have you ever had, met a quiet editor? No. <laughs> I've met a few. But I'm not going to start naming names. I agree they deviate from the norm. Well, gentlemen, sure. I think we, although we're recording digitally, we've actually run out of metaphorical tape. Oh. So uh, I think we're going to have to end it there. But what we normally do at the end is uh, ask our guests to kind of say what their Twitter is and how people can get in touch. For example, Peter, how do people buy your book? Uh, they go to www.hackingtrial.com and you can pre-buy and you get your name on the front of the back of the book. Oh, well, well, I shall certainly do that. And if and if listeners are listening and my name isn't on the back, that must mean I've not actually kept my word. Or is... And Raymond's better be there too. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, my, by the way, my Twitter handle is Peter Jukes, at Peter Jukes. Excellent. Ray? And I'm simply at Raymond Snoddy, one word. Um, I've got more than 8,000 followers. It's my ambition to get to 10,000 um, uh, before, bef- before too long. And I, I, I write what must be called a blog because only electronic um, every Wednesday for uh, MediaTel. And I'm seriously thinking in the light of this conversation, doing a piece, which I hope will be thoughtful, 
fight the Clyde funding of journalism. My thanks to our guests, Raymond Snoddy and Peter Jukes. The associate producer was Jordan Greenaway. And you can find us online at www.mediafocus.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!